Our scripture passage tonight comes from John 14, 15 through 26. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These are the words of our Lord. Okay, y'all, we've been looking this semester at trying to uh, absorb ourselves in the topic of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and we've been looking at that as a way of trying to understand faith, not so much by necessarily sort of getting caught up in what exactly we mean by believing and by faith, but rather trying to look at faith's object, right? Um, tonight, we come in the Apostles' Creed to the little phrase, I believe in the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, this summer, when I was actually working through some of this series, uh, my son asked me one of those famous questions. He said, Daddy, what is wind? Or something like, you know, where does the wind come from? Now look, remember, my son is six years old. How are you going to answer that question? Look, let me go ahead and sort of break it to you that to say, okay, son, um, well, there's a thing of high pressure and a thing of low pressure, and like if they get really close together, then the wind kind of picks up. Okay, that's not going to work for that explanation, right? Now, but I think there's a reason, though, why in that same vein that when you go to the Old Testament and you start to look and see the word that we have translated as spirit, it's the Hebrew word literally translated as wind or breeze, right? And Jesus actually comes out explicitly and says it in John chapter 3 when he says, when he's talking to Nicodemus, that the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And then he says, so it is with everyone who is what? Born of the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, one of the best ways to describe wind is to do it indirectly. In other words, you can oftentimes describe wind better by looking at seeing its result than trying to describe the thing that itself. You can see and even experience its effects, but when you try to sort of get at its essential nature, it's just kind of mysterious. That's about as good as I can do in introducing the topic of the Holy Spirit. But you have to understand that because the Spirit is mysterious, <clears throat> that means that it's open for all kinds of misunderstanding. 
Um, you know, your, your Eastern sort of mystic religions tend to take the idea of the Spirit uh, and they kind of diffuse it out into all of reality, right? Uh, so that the Spirit becomes this like uh, mystic life force, as it were, or sort of natural energy. Uh, of course, the problem with that is, is that life force, because it's impersonal, doesn't have a way of communicating to you its essential nature. So that there's no coherence in the movement. If the Spirit is everything and everything is the Spirit, you can't really say what it really is and what it's really saying. Um, uh, your other sort of monotheistic religions, especially like Islam, would never let the Spirit of God come in contact with the material world uh, because of the separateness of Allah. Allah is holy, W-H-O-L-O-I, other in that sense. And so his presence among us would be way too earthy for him to tolerate. Look, y'all, what I want to submit to you, though, tonight is that getting a grasp, a feel for a theology of the Spirit is the one thing that's going to help the Apostles' Creed to be more than just facts. Look, y'all, one of the great ailments of um, southeastern Christianity, (laughs) southern Christianity, is that for most of us, especially growing up, even if we spent all this time in Sunday school, God is a pure abstraction for us. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a sense in which God is absolutely a pure abstraction in the most formal of senses. But when he's nothing but an abstraction, then there's something wrong. Something wrong with the way in which we're viewing God if by abstraction we mean like never actually means anything to my daily life. (laughs) That's a bad way of understanding what God is. Look, y'all, what I want to submit to you is, is that believing in the Holy Spirit, like it says we do in the Apostles' Creed, is a cure for Christianity's irrelevancy. Because for a lot of us, Christianity remains on the outskirts. It's sort of something that's on the periphery of my life. I invite you to come investigate the Spirit. Because the Spirit is what brings it home. Three things, as you are now hopefully used to. The importance of the Holy Spirit, first... We're going to look at the action of the Spirit second, and then finally the focus of the Spirit. The first point is much longer than the other two. I get to the other two really quickly, so don't panic when we run out of time after the first point. Just trying to help you along through the sermon process. Okay, it's okay to laugh. There's not a lot of people here tonight, so you need to engage. We need to get interactive here, or else it's going to get very awkward. Okay, the importance of the Spirit. Hmm, let me say it this way. I think that it's safe to say That whenever God does something big in the Bible, um, it's the spirit that is the agent of that deed. Okay? Think about it. Just a couple of examples. At the beginning, what was it that was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1 at creation? It's the spirit. Right? The energetic force of creation. We find that when Jesus came into the world and was born of the Virgin Mary, it was the Holy Spirit that conceived him. When Jesus was in the wilderness, sort of confronting Satan and all that time, we find that he was led there by the Spirit, and he came out of that temptation through the power of the Spirit. When Jesus was resurrected, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that it was the Spirit that raised him from the dead. And finally, we find that men wrote Scripture, as Peter says, as they were carried along by the Spirit. Now, think about that for a second. (laughs) Creation 
incarnation, temptation, crucifixion, resurrection, inspiration, regeneration. (laughs) It's all the Spirit. That's the Spirit that's doing those things. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity begins to help at this point. And it's really remarkable how many questions I get about this. Uh, one of the sort of top ten, like, uh, curious Christian questions that I get as a campus minister is, Les, who exactly should I pray to? Like, when I'm saying my prayer, should I pray to the Father? Should I pray to the Son? Should I pray to the Spirit? And my answer to that question is always like, well, it depends. It depends on what it is that you are actually praying about. Because the members of the Trinity actually participate in different ways in your salvation. This is new news to a lot of people. And the funny thing is, is the creed actually helps us along with this. Have you noticed that the creed is really a Trinitarian creed? It starts with the work of God the Father. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Then it moves to the work of Jesus, the work of the Son. And then finally, in the last sort of, I don't know, third of the creed, it's about what the Spirit does and what the Spirit brings. In many ways, for the rest of the semester, we're going to be talking about that. When I was in seminary, I had somebody put it this way. The, 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 the Trinity does this. The Father is the author of salvation, the one who thinks it up, the one who originates it, plans it from the, for the foundations of the earth. The Son is the accomplisher. I know that's not a word, but it starts with the letter A, so go with me here. It's preacher tricks. He's the accomplisher. He's the one who comes to earth and actually carries out our salvation. Thirdly, the Spirit is the applier. He's the one who takes it and applies it to the heart of the believer, all these benefits that come to them. Author, accomplisher, applier. They're all doing different things. So my answer to who should I pray to depends on what you're praying about. I would pray to the Father as the author, the one who, who originated my salvation, who's the one in charge of all things. I pray to the Son when I'm thinking through my position before God, the one who's won me my salvation. I pray to the Spirit when I'm looking for action. Look, y'all, what this means is, is that if anything substantive, listen, 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 this is the big point, happens to you, spiritually speaking, up until this point in your life, if it's happened to you, it's the Holy Spirit that did it. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, in John 14, 20, Jesus talks about a day when his followers will know God, that God was in Jesus and that Jesus was in us and that we are now, therefore, in him. That's a weird way to talk. And to be honest with you, that's a, it's a bigger concept than we have time to deal with here. But I simply want you to know that what Jesus is saying is this. It is at the Spirit where you and God intersect. Does that make sense? Meaningful contact with him is at the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God-experienced. It's God-tangible, God-manifest and known in a way that's beyond just theoretical. You know what I mean by that? Look, now, this is where, though, we have to be careful (laughs) Because whenever we start to attach God to our experiences, there is a good way and a bad way to think about it. And I I don't think I can stress this quite enough. Look, there's a good way of dealing with this, okay? Let me see if I can deal with the good way. When you first become a Christian, um, you don't just sort of assent to an abstract set of ideas. Becoming a Christian is not looking and saying, hmm, what an interesting set of doctrines for life. Sure, I think those are true. I'll take that for 400 there. 
What's the, that's the Jeopardy's host name? Alex Trebek, thank you. <laughs> it's good to have a, see, this is why we interact as an audience like that. Yes, I'll take Christianity for 400, and suddenly how we've assented to its truthfulness, and that gets us in. That's not what becoming a Christian is. What I want to submit to you that we do is, is something like this. To become a Christian is to begin to reorient your life, everything that happens to you, around God's story that he's telling about you. You do realize that every single one of us in this room is living a story. Your story is the way in which you understand why you're here. It's what you filter the events of your life through. It's what it means, and it's how it directs you in knowing what to do every single day. And so the Spirit's job is to come into your story and to begin to get you to retell your story that are around different story arcs. Now, what do I mean by story arcs? Well, listen to me. What is the story of the Bible? If you think about it, God's story begins with creation. He is the source of all life. Creation, though, secondly, is upset by man's fallen sinfulness. But thirdly, God comes and rescues us through Christ's redemption. And then fourthly, God begins to restore its creation to its original design. In many ways, those are the major story arcs of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, glory, or restoration. Now, here's what's interesting. You will know that you have become a Christian when that story becomes the story of your last dating relationship. For example, number one, you know, okay, that relationships were a good thing created by God. He wants for people, men and women, to get together in meaningful, life-giving relationships. That dating relationship was, on the surface, a good thing. No need to kiss dating goodbye, right? <laughs> the joke is completely lost on anyone. That's all right. It's an old, it's a long, old story. In other words, it was created good. Secondly, though, things that go wrong in your relationship, however, are due to the sinfulness and selfishness of your heart and the heart of the person you're dating. But thirdly, Jesus' grace on the cross is to be the central feature of your life that allows you to have forgiveness and transformation so that fourthly, that dating relationship can change and be patterned after more what God wants it to look like. Did you catch that? <laughs> what happened is, is through your dating relation, you began to retell your story around what God has to say about that. That is the Spirit's work. Because it's not just about your dating. It's about your future career. Work is a good thing. Work is corrupted by our selfish sinfulness and our idolatry of work. But Jesus died on the cross to save you from its tyranny and idolatry. And now he wants to redeem you with and through your work. Did you catch that? It's how you deal with your schoolwork. When you're sitting there listening to what a professor says, you say there very well may be that there's things that God has created in this lecture that I need to be attentive to and listen to. But you know, because of sinfulness, it's likely be that there's going to have to be done some filtering. Thirdly, how does the cross inform this? And how does God want me to use this to transform his world? Do you see what I'm saying? That is the Spirit's work to retell your story around the Bible story. That I'm no longer living my story, but his story. That is the good way in which God becomes personal to us. However, there is a wrong way of doing this. What happens to, oftentimes to Christians 
is they begin to over-spiritualize their lives to a point where they begin to sort of see God in places where God never said that he would be. Uh, There was a friend of mine at the University of Memphis when I was the RUF campus minister there who was convinced that God, I've told a couple of you this story, was winking at him when he would be on his way back from work late at night through street lights that were flicking off and then back on. He'd be praying through something on the way home. Oh, Lord, what do you want me to do about this? Are you really going to protect me through this? He'd look up, a street light would flicker off and back on. He was like, that's God winking at me. Okay. Now, as weird as that sounds to us, I've heard Christians talk about God giving them parking places at Walmart. Talk about them sort of God sort of granting unto people victories at high school football games. You know, the interview looks up and says, how was it? I just want to give all the glory to God for this victory. Hmm. It's a little self-serving, isn't it? Assume that God is, God is fighting for the rebels. Is that a little self-serving? Or allowing them to win homecoming queen or something like that. In other words, we have to be very careful not to attach God's work to the things that he has not explicitly said are things that he attaches them to. Look, y'all, an experience with the Spirit. Oh, if you don't hear anything else tonight, please hear this. An experience with the Spirit is not some kind of hyper, unhinged, hyper-realized magic. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, did y'all see that? That's not what the Bible is talking about. When it talks about the activity of the Spirit, that's the wrong way of doing it. Look, of all of the truths that are most central to the discussion of the work of the Spirit, you want to know one of the things that's the most central? Is that the Spirit always comes with the, drum roll please, the Bible. So you can know when the Spirit's acting when you see it in the Bible. The Spirit, I would argue authored the Bible in order to let their people, his people know when it is, when it really is him working, and when it's not him working, it's just our fanciful, sinful imaginations that are projecting God onto things that he never said he was a part of. Does that make sense? Look, if the Bible doesn't explicitly attach the Spirit's work to something, I would argue that we ought to be terrified to attach his name to it. God told me to dot, dot, dot. Really? Well, what did he sound like? (laughs) Audible voices? Look, y'all, God says that his spirit and his word are always united so that our experience with the spirit, hear me, hear me, hear me, is qualified by and limited to what he said he would do in his word. Now, that ought to be begging the question for you right now. Uh, okay, Les, well then exactly what is it that the Spirit does? How do we know what the Bible says when the Spirit does show up? All right, if I'm supposed to limit myself to it, which brings us to the second point. That's the importance of the Spirit. In other words, I'm trying to get you to walk out of here tonight and say, oh, Spirit's kind of a big deal. He's not just that weird one. You know, I kind of get the Father, I get the Son, but then there's this weird one. No, He's the active agent. He's what you should be dependent on. My second point, though, is the action of the Spirit. Okay, so what is he doing, Les? What is the activity? I'm glad you asked. When the Spirit shows up in the Bible, he brings two things. You'll always know when the Spirit shows up because two things happen. Number one, there's life. And number two, there's power. Life and power come with the Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit brings life. The Spirit is the creator. 
And he is also the recreator of life itself. Look, think about this for a second. This is not that complicated. How do you know if something is alive or not? If you walked out of here tonight and you saw someone lying down, they were laying there on the ground, what would you look for to find out if they were alive or not? You would look for whether or not they were breathing. If something is breathing, then they're alive. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, what you get translated as wind is also translated breath. Look, y'all, you know you have the Spirit when the dead things in your life are actually being identified and healed. That's the Spirit's wake. The Spirit is the one who comes to us and says, I need for you to look at this dead place in your heart. It's not breathing, and it's rotting, and it stinks. And it's doing something to bring dysfunction into your life. And I need you to notice that. So that when we begin to all of a sudden notice dead places in our lives that bring about a stench, not just into God's nostrils, but in the nostrils of those around us, guess what? That's the Spirit identifying those. The Spirit, it says in John 16, 8, in the passage right after the one that we just read tonight, says that the Spirit, Jesus says, will convict the world concerning sin. You know the Spirit is working if all of a sudden you are stopped in your tracks and you sense guilt and remorse and fear over having broken God's heart and his law. That's how we know. But, but the Spirit comes to heal those broken places too. How? The Spirit heals the dead places in your heart by giving you a new future. This is one of my favorite things about the Spirit. And the truth is, I struggled to, to preach only on this other passage from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Favorite passage about the Spirit says that the Spirit comes to us, Paul says to the Ephesians, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now think about that. The Spirit comes as a down payment, a, a, a little bit of this. Hey, I want you to try this because guess what? There's plenty more where that came from. We sing in, um, uh, in um, oh gosh, the streams in Emmanuel's land, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above because there, what? To an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I had a friend of mine, actually he was a student uh, in my ministry, now a friend, uh, who got married very early, right out of college. And, you know, they were a, a happy-go-lucky uh, sort of brand-new married couple, not necessarily that um, astute when it came to uh, finances, so to speak, uh, as it were. And um, at one point, they ran into a lot of financial difficulties uh, with him really early on, within like a year or two of being married. At one point during that, though, they got some really extremely tragic news that uh, the, the girl's father had actually um, acquired a, a terminal illness and had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Horrible tragedy. But what happened was he actually happened to be in possession of a lot of money. <laughs> and they found out that through his illness that he had written them into the larger part of their will. And I'm talking like big money, big money, okay? Now, here's the funny thing. The father, though, went on to live for another, I think, eight to ten more years struggling through this terminal illness. But you know what was so funny? My friends didn't deal with their problems in the same way in which they did before. You know, before there was complete depression. There was, oh, there was fear about it all. When they found out, this was crazy, that something was coming, you know what they did? 
they fixed their financial problems. It's the craziest thing. In other words, when they knew that the fear was gone from the future, they began to look at their present financial problems in a completely new light. Suddenly, they didn't have the teeth that they had before. Hmm. The Spirit comes to us as God's way of saying, look, I'm giving you this to show you that the little bit of conviction and reality that I'm giving to your soul and the little bit of healing that I give to you and encouragement in the Spirit that I give to you, it's coming in spades. One day, your destiny is to drink fully of all that, and I'm going to bring it to you in spades. Look, y'all, the Spirit, you'll know, shows up when he brings life. But secondly, you'll know the Spirit shows up when he brings power. Look, whenever you see people in the Bible who are full of the Holy Spirit, they typically are capable of like superhuman feats of courage and poise. You want to know why? Simply because Jesus comes and refers to the Spirit as the helper. Now, in my opinion, that's too weak in our translation. What the word really means is our advocate. He's our counselor, our representative. In other words, the reason why people get transformed to do amazing things is because they see Jesus being their advocate, that the Spirit is showing them at that moment Jesus standing in their stead. And I would simply invite you that if you missed last week to go back and listen to it, because that's how Stephen, the first Christian martyr, could stare down that stoning because the Spirit gave him a vision of Jesus that saw him being his advocate, and suddenly he was full of power. Look, it doesn't come. The power of the Spirit does not come because your eyes rolled back in your head and you were like, mm. It's not the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit is drawn from a sight of Jesus. More on that to come. One small little sidebar here. This won't take me two minutes here. I want to make an important point about how important it is for us to believe this. Because there have been a lot of people, I would use for example, who come to RUF and are a bit unnerved. And this is how they phrase it. And a lot of people are honest enough to come talk to me about it. They'll say, you know, Les, I like RUF, but one of the problems is, is I really wish that you guys would do more evangelism. And it surprises them oftentimes when I look at them and say, huh, that's really funny because actually I would say that in RUF, we're doing nothing but evangelism. And they look at me with furrowed brows. And what they mean is, is they mean, well, you know, like at the end of RUF, you don't have that sort of time where it's sort of like, you know, every head bowed, all eyes closed. Everybody knows the end of that sentence, don't you? Every head bowed, all eyes closed. Everybody knows the end of that sentence, right? And where we're going to have where we all pray prayers to become Christians, right? What about happened to that? Now, look, in my opinion, and I'll give you the, the answer that I give to people whenever they ask me that question, evangelism defined in that way, I think is aiming at the wrong target. If you want my critique of sort of classic Southern Christianity, this is a big one. Southern Christianity aims at, they put evangelism in their target, the human will. That is your decision-making faculty is where they're aiming at. In other words, they long for you to make a decision, to pray a prayer, to sign a card, maybe perhaps to walk an aisle, whatever it might be. To pray a prayer that says, I'm going to ask Jesus into my heart to accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. Phrases which I don't have a huge problem with. Not in the Bible, but I don't have a huge problem with. 
What if, though, instead we looked and said, not that God doesn't challenge our wills and our decision-making, but what if we aimed at the Spirit instead? In other words, instead of putting the will in our crosshairs and trying to get people to make decisions, we put the Spirit in our crosshairs and said, what we want to do is do stuff where he shows up. And guess what? The Bible says it comes in two places. You want to know where they are? You want to know what they are? I'll tell you. Spirit shows up in the Bible, and the Spirit shows up in Christian community. Did you catch that? Scripture and what the Bible calls the church. Your relationships with each other. We're going to do an entire semester on the doctrine of the church next spring, by the way, through the book of Ephesians. It'll be a real hoot. Why? Because we believe that when word and community get together through a request that we make of God's Spirit, guess what? People who don't know Jesus come to know him. And the people who do know Jesus grow up in him through those two same things. So I don't have to make some decision tonight to be saying, are there Christians here or are there non-Christians here? We don't make that distinction in RUF. Why? Because the same Spirit speaks to both. This is why Blake said tonight, as he always says, that this is for the convinced and the unconvinced. Because we think both of those groups need the Spirit. As it comes to us in the Word and as it comes to us in real community, we have beautiful, the words of God being sought to be lived out in genuine Christian community where we're encouraging one another and building one another up, not tearing each other down. Look, y'all, the focus of the Spirit, the activity of the Spirit, is this action where he's coming and he's bringing new life and he's bringing new power and we simply watch what happens in his wake. Okay, thirdly and finally, and this is a very small point, but I thought it deserved its own point because there's one other way of identifying the work of the Spirit and it's the main way. You'll know when the Spirit shows up because you saw Jesus. One of my favorite commentators through the Apostles' Creed is uh, the great old theologian uh, up in Vancouver, J.I. Packer. If you've never read Packer's Knowing God, shame on you. You have to read that book in order to be a Christian at Ole Miss. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, J.I. Packer tells a story uh, when he was a younger minister. He's British, and so he was in England. And he was driving on his way to preach at a certain conference, but he had gotten lost. And he said, if you drive through the English countryside at night, it's inky blackness, especially when it's overcast like it was this particular night. It's foggy, and he's lost. He has no idea where he's going and can hardly see a thing. But all of a sudden, he turns a corner, and he looks up on a hill, and he sees the church at last. And the only reason why he sees it is because there are spotlights shining on it. And suddenly, he says, I had it. I understood what it was that I wanted to say about the Spirit at that moment. Because the spotlights were not drawing attention to themselves. They were casting light on what he needed the most. You know you found the Spirit because the Spirit is a spotlight that is shining upon Jesus. R.C. Sproul was the one who used to say that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. Now, that's a not very good description if by shy you mean doesn't ever do anything. I mean, Spirit's doing everything, I would argue. But if you mean that he's always deflecting attention away from itself, himself to Jesus, then you got him. That's how you'll know that the Spirit has shown up. Tim Keller says that he is the great matchmaker. 
The Spirit is the great matchmaker because he's the one who joins you and Christ together. And when Christ comes up and sets a home in your life, stuff starts changing. You can no more not change your life when Jesus shows up than you can get married and not expect massive changes to happen to you. Uh, my wife is um, very interesting. Uh, I, whenever my, uh, for a thousand different reasons, <coughs> could go on and on about that. I've always gotten, though, entertained how whenever her parents come over uh, to Oxford, she's from Jackson, and her parents come up from Jackson uh, all the time, and um, whenever she f- knows that they're coming, she gets busy as she can be to clean up that house. She is making the house to be spotlit for the parents to come in. I'm kind of like, look, if anybody knows that you're messy, it's your mom and dad, right? But it took me a few years to understand that it had nothing to do with Ginger's fear of her parents, She wasn't terrified what her parents were going to do to her (laughs) if she didn't clean up the house. What it was was she was proud of her parents, and she wanted for her parents to be proud of her. And so what did she do? She cleaned up. Look, y'all, whenever the Spirit shows up in a person's life, it introduces that person to Jesus. But do not be mistaken. The introduction to Jesus is to lend yourself to a great cleaning up. The Spirit is the cleansing one. He comes to renovate, my friends. Whatever spiritual furniture lays around in your heart right now, the Spirit is coming to mess it all up (laughs) and to rearrange it to say there are things in which you must understand and must grapple with if you're going to live with this person, Jesus Christ. Look, y'all, here's the point. It's the Spirit at work. Because this is my last little invitation to you. I like to leave you with these invitations, right? Jesus said that if you, human beings, being evil, it's not very nice, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? Now, we think that what he's going to say is good gifts, but that's not what he says in the Luke passage. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. In other words, Jesus assumes that the best gift that the Heavenly Father could give you is the Holy Spirit. I dare you to pray that kind of prayer. Lord, I want to know if you're there, and so bring the Holy Spirit. If your Holy Spirit is there, bring it on. I want to see it. Buckle up. (laughs) That's an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to be able to pray to the Spirit Uh, Holy Spirit, will you work in us and through us and for us to show us? In many ways, Lord Jesus, we we are embarrassed by the work of the Spirit because he is constantly taking tension off of himself and he's putting it on you. And we so often are looking for attention for ourselves. And so for that great deflection, we are grateful for the model but we also long for there to be life. Lord Jesus, there are too many people in this room for there not to be story after story of all kinds of dead places on the inside, places on the inside that hurt, that are a stench to us as well. And so we're asking that you would come and bring a great healing. Holy Spirit, that you would fall on us in Pentecostal power and manifest your presence in the preaching of your word And maybe even in the kindness of another Christian who's here tonight. Would you do that? If you would do that, it would make our time worthwhile. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.